for one wall. Yeah. Uh, hello, everybody. Turn your Bibles to First um, Thessalonians chapter three. And today we're going to be looking at the aspect of love that God, God's love that He gives us, that allows us and, and in fact motivates us to uh, rejoice when others succeed, and especially even when we have nothing to do with it. You know, it's not because we did anything. And when others succeed, even when, you know, it's our enemies or people we don't like, and we'll finish with the prodigal son parable, but the one, there's there's two brothers, as you know, in that parable, and the older brother is actually quite bitter that his younger brother is saved, really. You know, he's delivered from a world of hurt, and his, the older brother is actually really upset about it. And it's a parable, right? So it's it's not a history. It's not a real, they're not two real people, but Christ is making it a parable as he's teaching a crowd, and in that crowd there are those who fit the bill of the younger and those who fit the older. The ones who fit the older are the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, who see people get saved and delivered from sin because of the ministry of Christ, but they're really upset about it because they didn't do it. It's that, you know, they can't take any credit for it. So what we see this a lot in the human race, right? That where people rejoice when others uh, do well, if they have something to do with it, you know, like you think, I think of a, like a politician, if things go right, they're always taking credit for it. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, it, and what, what this love of God gives us, we'll see here in Thessalonians, is the, the real desire for others and the joy that comes from that, the joy in seeing others prosper. And uh, that is the love of God, and that's the love that Paul has. And he's going to show that to us uh, today. So let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for his love, which is revealed to us through his Son and through his Word. And let's be grateful and thankful for his Word, respectful, and again, focusing on the message that God has for us today. With that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word in this particular letter that reveals to us uh, so many things about the Christian life. We thank you that you have preserved your word for us so that we can continue to learn from it. Without your word, we can know nothing about you and know nothing about ourselves. And so, Father, you have redeemed us and made us born again and saved. And And also, you have given us a key who is God the Holy Spirit, to be able to see into your word. And if we have faith to see and to look, desire to see, then you promise that we will see. We'll see what you are, who you are, and what you have done for us. And what is really life? And part of that life, perhaps the greatest part of it, is love. Your love for us. You have so loved the world that you gave your son. It is your love that motivated you to save us, to deliver us, and you have poured your love out in each believer. And as priests to you, we represent you in this world, and we long to show your love to others. And we ask, Father, that you uh, heighten our uh, understanding of that. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. So uh, it's been long enough that uh, in Thessalonians that we should probably do a quick review. That's what I have planned for initially. And initially we have Paul. This is his second missionary journey. And uh, the first missionary journey stays pretty much localized in Turkey. And I'll do a dangerous thing here and get my pen out, which always is going to be. So his first missionary journey is all basically right around there. And the second missionary journey, as you can see, if you just follow the red line, takes him over to Greece. And Thessalonica is right in here. 
kind of north of Athens, and uh, I thought the words had come out a lot bigger, <laughs> but uh, let me get rid of my ink here, and let's see if we have Athens here, and Thessalonica is up here in the north. That's Macedonia. So, um, you know, the he's there, he, he when he gets there, uh, he's persecuted greatly by the locals, uh, by the Jews and Gentiles, uh, and then he has to leave. And so within about a month, he can only be there, uh, it says in Acts, this is in Acts chapter 17, that he's there for about three weeks and then he has to go. And they get him out of town and he goes to the next town over, which is Berea. And so I could walk over and point to it, can I? So there's Berea right there, which is just west of it, about 40 miles. And uh, they follow him, the Jews uh, from Thessalonica who want Paul to stop. They follow him 40 miles, which means they're really committed. (laughs) But um, Paul is very concerned about the Thessalonians because he has to leave them behind. Uh, They have a pagan background, which means that they've lived a life that is uh, immoral, and so they're surrounded by that immorality. And you know, to to go from being pagan, immoral to you know, it's not just a new religion. It's not just uh, I say just, but it's not just being saved and oh my God, we're saved and we have eternal life and we're priests and all of that. There's the calling upon our lives, which is very moral and very ethical, and they've never lived that. Whereas the Jews have, at least, you know, one of the things the Jews had going for them, uh, one of many things, but one thing they had going for them is that they had already been used to and taught a moral lifestyle in Judaism. The pagans didn't have that. And so uh, after soon departing, Paul uh, couldn't take it anymore. So what I mean by that is as Paul gets now down to Athens, I definitely should have made a bigger map here, but... Uh, as he goes from here down to Athens, uh, that's in the end of Acts 17, it's been about a two-month period, and it's not like he can pick up his cell phone and call or read the local newspaper. He doesn't know what's going on in Thessalonica. He left them behind in great suffering and persecution, and as he says in chapter 3, he can't take it anymore. So when in from Athens there down the bottom, he sends Timothy north, you know, a good uh, 150 miles. But we have good Roman roads at this time, so travel is safe and quick. Uh, and he sends Timothy to check it out. Uh, Timothy comes back then after coming back, and Paul has to wait for him. And he's, you know, he's chomping at the bit, really concerned. He's so concerned, in fact, that he's praying, as he says to them in chapter 3, night and day, for them. Now, that doesn't mean 24 hours a day, but it just means that Paul is constantly praying. And this is another aspect of our love for others. Are we praying for others? If we really want to see the success for others, we would love to pray for others as we love them. And so in chapter 1, Paul relates how they had already developed a faithful work. Once he heard from uh, Timothy uh, what was going on there, which was wonderful things, things that you see in chapter 1 are faithful work, loving deeds, and enduring hope. And the the Thessalonians have that. They have faithful works, loving deeds, and enduring hope. Paul says that they had become imitators of him, even though they suffered But in that way, they were an imitator of Paul because Paul suffered not only in the same way, but in the exact same place. Uh, Paul had discovered, or so he writes in chapter 1, that the fame of Thessalonians had spread through the whole area. So if uh, we look at the area that he means here, that he would, what he mentions is Macedonia and Athens, so the actual reputation of the Thessalonians changing actually covers that whole area. And Paul mentions that in chapter 1. So their fame has spread. Fame for what? Yeah, you know, that there's a new religion in town. You know, that's not really it. That's not going uh, to, or as Paul even says it, that's not what actually spreads the news of what happened in Thessalonica. 
It's their joy and work and love and endurance. Their whole lives have changed. They've only been saved a couple months. And their whole lives have changed so much so that that whole area has heard about them. And so it it shows us that we don't have to wait forever to amass huge amounts of theology to do what God has called us to do. And that's an exciting thing. You know, you're changed in a moment at the moment of salvation. At the moment of salvation, the whole highway is open. Like we saw on Sunday, that Christ opened the door and this new and living way is open for us to follow. Right? From death to resurrection. So then in chapter 2, Paul encourages them further by reminding them of what he had done in their city which they saw firsthand, of course, that he suffered. But in the midst of the suffering that he went through, that he labored, uh, he gave the gospel to both those who uh, accepted it and those who did not. And Paul and his team reminded them that he suffered greatly while he was there, but he didn't back down from it and uh, that he endured it, and just like they have. So he uses himself as an example, which he often does. In chapter 2, Paul assures them that their, that their suffering is not isolated. In other words, why is this happening to me, God? Uh, it's not just happening to you, by the way. <laughs> right? It's when it happens to us that, you know, when it happens to others and we hear about it, we're like, yeah, oh, that's, that's too bad, you know, and then we quickly forget about it and go on with our lives. But in reality, what's happened to any of us has happened to countless millions already and probably are happening right now. And you can guarantee that whatever you're going through that's debilitating your spiritual life or trying to hinder it, let's say, that others currently are going through the same thing and with the same tools and the same, you know, assets that we've received at salvation are actually conquering and overcoming. And we can too. And that's the point of these many passages. And Paul again in chapter 3 is going to say, hey, by the way, we're all destined to suffer. Uh, Like he can't get off the subject. Well, and it makes sense because the Thessalonians are suffering greatly. Uh, Paul then relates how he and his team ministered to them as gentle children, as nursing mothers, and as teaching fathers or ministering fathers, and that he guided them and comforted them and implored them and served them, laid down his life for them, and he implored them to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul modeled it, taught it, and then bidded them to do it. As we'll see in chapter 3, when Paul finds out that they're actually doing it, it fills him with great joy. And it's not because he takes credit for it at all because his thankfulness is to God and not to himself. If you remember in chapter 2, Paul taught them about the imposter, who is the false teacher who comes in and, and actually had come to every single church or area that Paul had started churches in or a church in, after Paul would leave, that there would be imposters that would come with false doctrine of the various categories of falsehood, and but he describes them, and it's the people that we know well who are imposters. And he says they have flattering speech. They have a pretext that hides their greed, and they are seekers of the glory of men. And, you know, I, I saw today or read an article about the coming uh, ele- presidential election that's going to come next year, and the media is drooling over this. Right? What's to come? And it is a, a show, is all it is. Right? And what are we going to see? Is we're going to see this flattering speech. People are going to be hiding their greed. No matter who your candidate is, it's just that our, our things, our media, our world, is their truth presented to us on all these little screens that we're looking at. You know, wherein is the truth? <laughs> You have to look pretty hard for it, right? Uh, And Paul describes this, you know, uh, flattering speech, hiding greed, uh, pretending that they don't have it, and seekers of the glory of men. Uh, So Paul served them with his life. What Paul did not mean here, and I mean to say this before we move on now to chapter 3, 
is that this is not some form of asceticism. And a lot of Christians go that way. When I say a lot, I say enough that it's, uh, that it's known enough that Christians will suffer for the sake of suffering. Christians will uh, suffer in service of others for the sake of doing it. In other words, they want to suffer. They want their lives to be hard because they think that's what pleases God and that's what uh, pleases uh, others. And really, asceticism is very ironically a self-serving religion. In other words, I'm going to make myself suffer and so that everybody notices. I'm going to make myself suffer so that God notices. In fact, there's many cases of this all throughout church history, especially in the Middle Ages where people martyred themselves and starved themselves and, and all to show the world that they were suffering for Jesus. The purpose of suffering is the service of others. It is never for the sake of suffering itself. Right? We, we don't see that anywhere in the Scripture, that people suffer. We are to suffer just for the sake of suffering. The suffering comes because we're walking in the truth. The suffering comes not because we're denying ourselves uh, things that we need. The suffering comes because we're denying ourselves things that we need in the service of others. In other words, we're suffering because we're loving. We're suffering because we stand in the truth and we're not bending. We're suffering because we're serving and the flesh doesn't want to do it. And so we suffer in our own bodies because the flesh wants to be lazy and serve itself and the flesh wants to be petted and admired and we're saying to it, no, no, no. Because it hounds us daily and we say no to it. And so we suffer in that way. The suffering, therefore, is not placed upon us purposely by us but it is actually because we're following the Lord. And that point needs to be made because we're going to see suffering again in chapter 3. The Thessalonians also behave righteously, as Paul says, and uh, the purpose of the letter, therefore, is to encourage God's people to continue to live godly and excel at that. Again, the purpose of the letter is to encourage God's people to continue to live godly and excel at it and in fact, to excel at it still more, despite the fact that there's persecution uh, that is upon you for living it. Uh, in a Western Christianity, I say Western in the East, where Christianity, I'd say in the Far East, Christianity in the Middle East is, uh, comes with a cost. In America, it doesn't, uh, generally. Meaning that if you're going to just attend a church, you can have a very casual relationship with God. Uh, a term that I, I like to use is like a country club Christian who, you know, just wants to do, I want to go to church on Sundays or maybe every other Sunday and just put in my time. But I'm not really committed to the word, to the way, to the life, to the Lord. And so when, for a casual Christian, when suffering comes, it's usually deserved. And then the Christian says, and you know, I'm going to say, I would say usually, not all the time, but when suffering comes upon someone who doesn't have a solid, loving relationship with the Word of God, they always say, why me, Lord? Now, why is this happening to me? And in fact, that, you know, God is in control of all things and everything that comes upon us in our lives has a purpose because God is in control. And so, when you love God's word, you're looking for that purpose. It's not that God hates you. It's the fact that he's either getting your attention, as, he's, as he does to all of us, or it's truly undeserved, and that it's a, a suffering that God has put upon us so that we can, or allowed to be put upon us so that we can uh, grow in our faith and strengthen our endurance. Uh, so, this brings us to chapter 3. We concluded, uh, chapter 2 concludes with the fact that Paul gives great thanks to God for the fact that they received the word of God as from God, even though they suffered, and he explains that suffering. Uh, last Thursday, that class, we talked about how suffering is um, necessary for every single believer. So then we get to uh, the main idea of 
and I didn't put it on the board apparently. The main idea of chapter 3 is joy on account of the spiritual success of others. I had a, thought I had a slide for that, but I don't. Uh, joy on account of the spiritual success of others. In fact, I'll just go back to the first slide. That's the title. <laughs> So that's the main theme of chapter 3 there, the title for today. The love that rejoices in the success of others. And that's what chapter 3 is about. Now, in chapter 3, there's a couple of sub-themes, and there always are this. You you know, Paul especially, with his run-on sentences and his kind of his incredible desire to fill his sentences with as much information as possible. Um, we'll always have sub-themes. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. So again, after all we just reviewed, now in verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So, and yes, Timothy is going there to find out what's happening, but Timothy is also going there with a great responsibility, which is that he's going to encourage them and strengthen them. And not anybody can do that, and that's why Paul sends Timothy, because faithful ministers of, of God's word and gospel to others must be absolutely committed to the Lord, first and foremost, and Timothy is. You can't just send anybody to do a ministry to others. So he sends Timothy, and then he says, so that, in verse 3, this is what he tells Timothy to tell them, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Destined for this, absolutely. And that the word there, uh, I'll talk about it a little bit, in the Greek means that God has purposely placed us in the situations that we're in so that we will be tested in this way, which are the afflictions that are for righteousness' sake, not for sin. So he says here that we're not to be disturbed by that. Disturbed means uh, to be shaken from our faith, or to actually it could also mean that we're trying to get around the suffering in some other way. And we're not to do that. We're not to be disturbed by the afflictions because we're to understand that we've been destined for it. If you're a believer, you have been, part of your calling is to suffer for his namesake. So he says in verse 4, now he gives an example reminding them, for indeed when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. So it came to pass, as you know, for this reason when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter, and here he refers to the devil, might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So we see a a sub-theme here that Paul is, um, that no one, no believer, should be disturbed or shaken by these afflictions. The tempter is the devil, right? He says here, the tempter might have tempted you. But he's also already written to them that they were tested and suffered at the hands of their countrymen. And so, well, who is it? Is it Satan or is it the Jews who followed Paul to Berea? Uh, is it the Gentiles that are in Thessalonica who, uh, who persecuted them for their absolute change in life and lifestyle and change in faith? So who is it? And Paul here points to the devil. And this reminds us that we don't fight against or wrestle against flesh and blood. Uh, The devil is always somehow behind persecution and suffering. And I do mean suffering and persecution for the sake of righteousness. Uh, The devil is always behind it somehow. And this will help us not to be disturbed or shaken in our faith because... The person who is persecuting you, the person who is causing the pain in your life for righteousness sake because you're trying to follow the Lord is not your real enemy. And if they're not, why are you getting upset at them? Why are you letting them take your peace away? Why are you spending time uh, thinking about how you know, whatever, wasting time thinking, worrying, brooding over them. 
They're not your enemy. Now, this does not mean that they can say I'm not culpable because the devil made me do it. Right? It's the old Flip Wilson uh, routine. You have to be as old as us to know that, which everybody here is. But, uh, you know, like this, the devil made me do it, so, I, you know, it's not me. That's not true. The people who do evil do it by choice. But somehow, some way, the devil is always behind it. And so, knowing that, it's easier for us to, you know, realize that this is from God, and God allows it. And God is allowing Satan to tempt us, and therefore, God, in a way, is cheering us on to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So, what's happening in Thessalonica, Jews and Gentiles, mostly Gentiles, it seems, are day in and day out persecuting these people. They're not accepted to the family parties anymore. They're not accepted. Some of them probably lost their jobs because this whole area is full of pagan worship. And if your boss goes to the local temple to worship pagan idols, and you used to, and now you don't anymore, and you actually, by your lifestyle, condemn your boss for doing it, not because you're condemning him verbally, but you're just not going anymore. And when the boss man says, why aren't you going with us to the temple? Uh, then you say, well, according to my Lord, I cannot do that. It's immoral. It's what? Yeah, it's immoral. Look, I can show you how to be saved. I can show you what the moral and good life is. But what you're doing is wrong. You used to go with us. Yeah, I know, but I don't go anymore. I'm not going anymore. I follow my Lord. I'm not going yeah, what's the reaction to that? Family, bosses, friends, neighbors, the, the government even, the local government of Thessalonica. These places are more you know, self-run city-states. The persecution is constant upon them. And so wouldn't it be so easy for them to be bitter all the time, to be uh, angry, right? How many Christians now are like super angry? I I get it. I saw a a report today that made me get anxious about things of the near future. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm I'm not going there. I'm not letting what people who don't believe in God do take away my peace. I'm not letting what people who could care less about the truth and about the Lord and about other people's lives, steal my peace from me. No way. It's not worth it. And it's just wrong. And so this point here that Paul makes, it kind of sits there. You could almost read right by it without noticing it, that the tempter might have tempted you. And that's what he's concerned about. The devil was behind it all. No believer should be shaken. So the picture I choose, which is often when I choose for this, is the and and I you know the house built upon the rock. That's why you know it makes me think of this and the Lord's at the at the very end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. You know, if you hear these words of mine, you know what, and you should always remember this. What is the house built upon the rock? There's two houses in the at the end in Matthew seven. One of them's built on one thing, and one of them's built on the other. And one of them stands and one of them doesn't. Now, the one built upon the sand doesn't stand. Why? And this you should know. Memorize it if you have to. They hear the word of God and don't act upon it. The one built upon the rock is the one also. So both of them hear the word of God. You must remember that. But the one built upon the rock hears the word of God and acts upon it. There's plenty of Christians who hear the Word of God and don't act upon it. And then when they can't handle problems and pressure, they say, you know, God, what is this? Why, what have you done to me? And God is saying, I'm trying to open your eyes to the reality of something. That you haven't acted on my Word. I mean, I am sovereign. There's no, there's no other way. You must act upon my Word. And if you don't, well... You know, and all of us do. I've spent years not acting on God's word, and it's. And I, I can think back. I could share story after story after story, which would probably entertain you, but uh, would not be the purpose of why I'm here. 
So he says no believer should be disturbed or uh, shaken by this. And then he says, where am I at for time? I'm just, this, is a, this is a sub-theme, and I don't want to spend too much time in it. He says, uh, verse 3, I don't want you to be disturbed by these afflictions, meaning your faith is shaken because you're suffering. For you yourselves know that you have been destined for this. And the word destined is used for the Lord. What's cool about this word, it's used 24 times in the New Testament, this word, um, uh, kainamai. I'm I'm trying to remember because one of my vocab words, I have a test next week. So uh, I won't even ask you to pray for me because that's not, I, I just have to memorize a bunch of words. But anyway, behold, this child is appointed, right? Appointed, this is stated by not the angels in Luke, but a man who's in the temple who was promised that he would see the Messiah before he died. His name was Simeon. And Simeon states this, and he uses the same word that Paul uses here for suffering. It says that the Lord, this child, was appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And we are appointed for suffering, uh, according for righteousness now, for righteousness' sake. Now, another sub-point here to lay down before we move on, uh, and again, we won't be able to get everything out of the chapter, but there's the fact that uh, he sends Timothy. Now, why does he send Timothy? Because you can't just send anybody. Notice again that the reason he sends Timothy is that he would strengthen and encourage you as to your faith at the end of verse 2. And you can't just send any old messenger to do that. So, In other words, Timothy has to really minister to these people. Neither Timothy nor Paul know what's going on before Timothy uh, travels up there and He's got to be ready for anything. You can't just send anybody. Maybe there's someone who's faster than Timothy, right? Maybe there's someone who's, uh, I don't know, knows somebody who has a, a, a fast cart or something, you know, whatever. The, the point I'm getting at is that a human talent, which can be used by God most effectively, uh, is useless if a person is not dedicated to the Lord. Those who will effectively minister with you have to be those who have given their lives to God. As I said, human, human ability and talent can be used by God. We're not, see, some people take this principle and say God only uses those who have no talent. Well, that's not true at all. We all have something. I mean, some have more than others. That's true. But what happens with, with people who are gifted with human talent in certain areas, they often get proud. And they don't give their lives to the Lord, right? You can't be proud and give your life over to God. You can't be self-centered and give your life over to God. And and that's what happens with people who are blessed either mentally, physically, as humans. You know, whether it's their DNA or their upbringing or whatever, that makes them a little bit smarter, a little bit better athletically, or a little bit better looking or whatever. you know, to give life over to God. You know, but if you have those things and you give your life over to God, then God can certainly use them. But first and foremost, we must serve the Lord. That's what Timothy is. Timothy is committed to serving the Lord. Actually, pretty much everybody with Paul and his team is committed to serving the Lord, and that's why they're with him. So the most effective ministers are those who serve the Lord. All right, so getting to verse 6 now, we start to roll into what this main theme, at least what I'm emphasizing as the main theme in this, par- uh, in this chapter, which is basically just uh, two, two paragraphs, so it's a short chapter. But in verse 6 he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as also we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted or encouraged about you through your faith. So, notice that Paul is encouraged or comforted 
by their faith. Right? Not his own faith, but their faith. Now, Paul certainly has faith, and he's comforted by that. But what Paul is saying here, too, is that the success of others truly gives him peace. The success of others truly gives him encouragement. So he says uh, in verse 7 again, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And that if clause there, to stand firm in the Lord, is, you know, it shows us that they may not stand firm in the Lord. It's not guaranteed for any believer at any time. We must do the things that uh, maintain our steadfastness in God's grace and knowledge and His love and, and His plan for our lives. And so we might or we might not. But Paul says here, look, Notice verse 8, now we really live. Isn't that amazing? And Paul here acknowledges the fact that he lives because they live. So he says, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which with, with which we rejoice before our God in your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, he just said that they have great faith. Now he seems to be saying that they lack faith. But what he means there is lacking in their, uh, let's say, doctrine or lacking in, because again, Paul was only there for a few months, and so they're lacking in some truth. Okay, so uh, he's dying to get back there, and he will eventually get back there, and he will minister to them more. He will give them more truth and more doctrine that they can increase their faith upon. And then he concludes with uh, the last sentence. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that we may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. So uh, Paul here ends this chapter with a prayer. He writes out his prayer. He does this quite a bit. And his prayer for them, please notice, is that they increase and abound in love for one another. And Paul has revealed his love for them, and this is what he desires. And notice it's not just for one another, but it's for all people. So there's your love for the whole human race, not just love for the brethren. So, and he says, just as we also do for you. And so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father. In other words, at the coming of Christ, that they may stand confident at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is what Paul desires. He desires it more than anything. So, Paul's life is really bound up in theirs. And this we see here. And this is what we're getting at for today that our lives are bound up in the success of others. We're told, Paul prays for them, right? He prays for this. We're told that uh, we are to consider how to stimulate one another, the love and good deeds. And uh, we're told that we should uh, be concerned about others and do, and are we? Uh, and it's the greatest life that there is. I, it, where our sin natures and the world system are lying to us in the fact that we think that by isolating ourselves and just taking care of us, that this is the road to prosperity. And it's not. It's not. The road to prosperity is being God-like. And God gives. God is a giver. God lays down his life. Jesus said this, that you must love by laying down your life. And that is how we love one another. And he said, well, Paul says here that his life is bound up in theirs. Now, I use the picture of two little kids because kids do this quite naturally where they share with one another and rejoice in that. Of course, they don't do that all the time. <laughs> we know that kids uh, are vicious, selfish little creatures who sometimes don't share but take. But, you know, in essence, as, at sometimes they do. They share with one another. And this kind of thing invigorates Paul in that the spiritual growth of others, the blessing of others, you know, and Paul has a lot to do with that, but say we don't have anything to do with that. Say that we, you know, we uh, see that others prosper 
uh, in their souls, in their lives? And are we either jealous or do we rejoice with them? Now, Paul is invigorated by his convert spiritual growth. And as they prosper, he says he prospers. He says, for now we really live. Um, let's see, I didn't put that on the board. Oh, I did. Romans 15, 32, Paul writes, I may come to you in joy, that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. That, you know, he desires to go to Rome. He writes here to the Romans that it is through their uh, spiritual lives that he finds encouragement and that he finds refreshment. In Philemon 7, verse 7, come on Philemon, Paul writes, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. And so the effect of Philemon, who's a great believer on others, Paul acknowledges here. But in writing to the Corinthians, we know that Paul, and Paul said to the Corinthians that we live together and we die together. And Paul is greatly distressed by, in two places, the Corinthians and the Galatians, Paul is extremely distressed because they're not living the way that he had taught them to live. They failed in their faith. And we see in those letters that Paul is filled with anguish. So as the people that Paul has converted, as they go down, Paul goes down. As they go up, Paul goes up. And it shows us that he is completely, uh, his life is their life, their life is his life. And this is truly what the body of Christ is. As we know, the body of Christ is perfectly knit together. We're to supply one another. We're to serve one another. And, you know, if we see in others prospering, it should give us great joy. If they're not, it should cause us heartache rather than be like, well, you're on your own. You made your own bed. Sleep in it. You know, where's our compassion? That's the point. The, The others that are in our lives, are they always getting it right? You know, because we talked about this in the first part of this message is that, you know, when you don't live right and you don't do what God has called you to do, you're going to be the house built upon the sand and eventually your house is going to fall. And believe me, there will be others around who will applaud the crashing of your house. But while we all acknowledge that and we should fear that in our own lives and for the lives of others, we do not... Rejoice when others crash. We, you know, we uh, mourn for them. We pray for them uh, as they go. As I, as I said, as they go down, we go down. Uh, so the power of the, you know, when we look at Paul's ministry, Paul's work, you know, as we see, and we know the most about him than any of the apostles because of the Book of Acts. That Paul's work was one of power and diligence. Paul's work was one of fervent zeal. Paul labored and uh, was not afraid of the difficulty or hardship that would come with his labor. He built a storehouse sorry, of knowledge and wisdom, and he loved doing God's work. And so, you know, where did he get that from? These qualities in Paul caused his ministry to excel, but if Paul had zeal and knowledge, wisdom, uh, and uh, an ability to handle suffering, and he had all of that, but he didn't have the Spirit of God in him, it would have been, uh, his ministry would have been uh, pretty useless. It would have been little use to Paul to actually be able to, uh, to, to minister as God had uh, commanded him to minister. And so being that with the filling of the Spirit, Paul is able to do what he does. Now, where does the filling of the Spirit come? How am I empowered by the Spirit? If not, by actually having a relationship with God in which I love God more than I love anyone that I desire his life more than I, than I desire any life. And we'll see this in the passage that we close with. That, you know, to be empowered by the Spirit of God to do what I need to do 
It can't just be fervor. It can't just be desire. It has to be spiritually empowered. And that's exactly what Paul has. Where am I going to get this love for others? And I, if I'm honest with myself and I see that I don't have it, you know, where is it going to come from? And if not, from God, because it is God's love. So the power of the Spirit comes from conformity of the soul to God alone. God has to be my one and only. And you know, if if He's not, then I'm I'm uh, I'm trying to serve two masters. If God is, if I'm not committed, then you know I I don't really haven't given over my life to God, but which we see that Paul has done. And so for this reason, Paul has a tremendous love for others. Why? Because he gave his life to God. Who's he thankful for in chapter two for the success of the Thessalonians? He's thankful to God, not to himself. He's not, he's not thinking to himself, wow, what an awesome ministry I have. What an awesome minister I am. What an awesome teacher I am. No, he's thankful to God because he loves the Lord first and foremost. Hence, his ministry is extremely successful. His life is filled with God because to God alone is he committed. A great example of this is seeing or knowing the fact that Paul could commit many miracles. We know, and there's a few passages that show us that Paul had the power of miracles. Um, and But we don't read anywhere of great many converts in Paul's ministry because he did miracles. You don't read it anywhere. You don't see uh, signs and wonders being performed by Paul and then a lot of people coming to Christ. But in fact, we see that the gospel alone is the work of Paul's ministry. The gospel alone. It's converted many in Paul's ministry. And the gospel was so effective in Paul because of his irreproachable conduct, his knowledge of God, his love of God, his faith to not fear the suffering that would come with his ministry, his love of others because he loved God. And it's because of that that his ministry was so effective, not his miracles. So for any of us to say, well, you know, my ministry would be more effective if I had, you know, I don't know, better looking, I had more money, I had more of this, more of that, more material things, it's a complete lie. Paul has the power of miracles, and it's not what makes his ministry. What makes his ministry is his faithfulness to the gospel. So why is Paul a lover of others. Why is his life overjoyed, whereas the prodigal son, older brother, is not? Why is that? And it's because Paul is committed to someone who is love. God is love. And by being committed to the one who is love, it's not Paul and then, you know, it's not God and then a bunch of doctrine and the, the points and doctrines of love, and then here's Paul, and he's just going to try and do his best. No, Paul is united to Christ just like we are. And that relationship to God in union through uh, the, the work of the finished work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, we have this life now that enables us to live a life that is God's. And if we do, we'll find in ourselves this incredible desire to love others. It will take time for us to figure it out and to unravel the truth of it, but it will happen. We will love others more than we love ourselves. We will consider others more important than ourselves. And it truly is a miracle. It's a miracle that happens inside of you because of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and your faith. And I think, you know, there's too many Christians who are you know, don't know that and and think, you know, they either they go one, you know, the pendulum always swings one way or the other. And on the far other side, there's everything is faith and there's no word. You know, there's no study of God's word. And, and on that side, the people really want to love and they really they have like emotion and they they want that. But they have no context. They have no word. They have no substance. And then you swing way over to the other side where the people are full of the Word. That's what they have is Word, Word, Word. They have so much doctrine in their heads. They're basically theologians. But they have no desire to do any of it. And what they, what they see themselves connected to is that big fat book of theology when it's the big fat book of theology which we need 
that brings us to where we're supposed to be, which is with God. The, the, the theology, the scripture, the Bible is all taking us in our relationship with God closer and closer. And that is what makes our lives have impact and be truly special. And there's a, often a disconnect there with believers. We need to know the Word of God down pat as much as much as we can, but we also need to use that word just as we're told to use it. All right, so let's see the prodigal son here. We'll get back where we started. Go to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. I knew I'd be short on time here for this, so we're just going to get to the older brother. I, I think you know the first part. It's always fun to read. So the prodigal son returns, as you know. The father runs out to him, throws his arm around him, and uh, kills the fatted calf, puts the ring on his finger, the shoes on his feet, has a party for him. My son was dead, now he's alive. Verse 25, now his older brother... Sorry, the older son, his older son, was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, remember, this is a parable. So Christ is forming this story particularly for those who are listening. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he, and he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. And by the way, in the parable at the front of the parable, the father gave the older brother his inheritance along with the younger brother. It says he split the inheritance between the two. But again, this is a parable, right? So it's, they're not actual people. But uh, so let me uh, finish this here and then we'll elaborate. Look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. Yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you, fill, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for your bro this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost, and now he has been found. So, the older brother is a depiction, obviously, of the Pharisees. They are listening. And also... So, there's two kinds of people in the crowd that Christ is speaking to. There's the sinner's who are of more of the lower class, and then there are the sinners that are of the upper class. They're both sinners, but the sinners of the upper class are those who are the Pharisees and Sadducees, who have seen plenty of people uh, turn to the Lord's message, find salvation, and not just salvation, but they've completely changed their ways, just like the Thessalonians have. And yet the Pharisees are not rejoicing in this. And why? Well, it's because the Pharisees has nothing to do with it. They hate the Lord. And the fact that the Lord is doing work that is saving and changing people's lives from death to life, from sin to righteousness, they don't care because it has nothing to do with them. Hence, this made-up guy in the parable is angry because the son coming home has nothing to do with him. He doesn't get anything from it. But in fact, he doesn't lose anything by it either, does he? Neither did the Pharisees. They didn't lose anything. It's not that Christ asked them for anything. But yet they still are upset. Are we upset when people, when people prosper? And so, and take this a step further... Because to us, we are to be merciful right? to the sinner. 
to the one who is prodigal, the one who has thrown it away. The one who, that's what prodigal means. It means he took the things of the father and he threw them away. So, you know, there's plenty of people in our lives who have taken the things that they should have cared for and they threw them away. Is it right that they have suffered for throwing it away? Absolutely. If <laughs> Who of us haven't suffered for our sins? What if we didn't? What if the mercy of God did not allow us to feel the pain of our bad decisions? Good God Almighty, where would I be right now? Where would you be? But yet we feel this pain, and when the pain is enough, we return home. And the father is overjoyed that the younger son has returned home. You know, that returning home is the coming together of the Son and the Father in union together. Now, we'll take this to our salvation. We're already in union with God, but for any believers, you know, we're just not getting it. We're straying. We're playing around with sin and sinful lifestyles. And then we come back. And when we come back, do we have to pay for the past? Do we have to do penance? No. We're forgiven completely. We've already been forgiven through the blood of Christ. We can return any time. Come back. And when we return and we reestablish our relationship with the Father, all in the body of Christ should rejoice. But there's plenty who are like the older brother. You know, that Christ has shown here to be the one who doesn't care that others are being saved. It doesn't care because what are they? who do they care about? Who do the Pharisees care about? First and foremost, they care about themselves. And so um, we're told all throughout the New Testament how we are to be with one another. And that is love. And it is truly life indeed. Paul loves the fact that the Thessalonians have gotten it. He even loves more that they continued to follow the word, the gospel that he gave them, despite the fact that they suffered greatly. That's commitment. Paul understands that. Timothy comes back and tells him this. So Paul is overjoyed. He's so overjoyed that he grabs, well, usually these guys dictated their letters, so we didn't say he grabbed a pen. But he, was, he said, let's write a letter. We have to write a letter to them immediately. That Second Thessalonians is written just a little bit after First Thessalonians. Immediately, Paul needs to write to them to again encourage them. And it is his great joy that they are successful. I have a passage in, uh, we have time, we're out of time here, but Uh, In Colossians 3, and we'll look at this a little bit later, but uh, where Paul writes that we are to clothe ourselves with something. And and that clothing is the new self or the new man. And he writes about how that clothing or what we are to do, what it is to look like. Just hear these words as we finish up. Put on a heart of compassion Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called to one body, and be thankful. Notice the words. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. And You know, throughout the New Testament, there's tons of lists. I say tons. There's about a dozen lists like this where virtues are listed one after another, after another, after another. And this, this list in Colossians 3 is how we are to treat one another. And, you know, for us, <laughs> what we want to do is, like, take one of these words and throw them out. You know, but we have to, we take, take more than one of these words and throw them out. 
But if, if we absorb them all, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love, and leave none of those out, where are we going to get such a life? And God has given it to us through Christ our Lord. Each of us has it. And through the Word and the Spirit, we can totally live it and need to live it because it is the life of God. And Paul has it for the Thessalonians we see here in this letter. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your Word. and Thank you for the calling upon our lives, the reminder, the exhortation to be what we need to be as unto you. It is the one and only life in your word. Your word is the only place, the only place of truth. It is your word that is going to change us. It is your word that is going to set us free. It is your word that is going to mature us. As we learn it, Father, and as as our Lord said, to act upon it. We ask and, and are thankful, Father, through Christ our Lord. Amen.